Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Woo! Uh, jet-lagged. Real bad. Yeah, why don't you tell the listeners what you've been up to this weekend, Sarah? Sure. Um, I was invited to be a speaker at the Atlantic Podcast Summit that was held... March 6th and 7th, and I've just returned from that. Um, I was only involved on the first day, which was more of a conference thing. The second day was more of a uh, boot camp workshop thing of getting your podcast going. It was out in Halifax, which was very cool to go see. I'd been there once before, and it's a beautiful city. It has a lot of history. It has an ocean, which is really cool. It's like right there. Calgary is a landlocked city, so it, it's novel. Yeah, Halifax is on the Canadian East Coast in the Maritimes. It's sort of like, I don't know, I think like the closest American equivalent would be like Rhode Island, like, you know, that kind of like New England sort of feel, except that like culturally that's not really what the Maritimes are like, but just in terms of like what the atmosphere is like, I guess. Yeah, I would say, like, New England, Maine Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful... Halifax is a beautiful city. Yeah. I ate pretty much only seafood. It was great. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, they are three hours ahead, so I was getting up at, like, 4 and 5 a.m. my time, and the time that I had on Saturday, that was my only time to be a tourist. So I got up. I walked everywhere, so the distance, according to Google Maps, between each location, like each museum and gallery I was going to, was six kilometers. Mm. And then, of course, I walked within the museums and the galleries itself, and walking in airports and everything, I think I walked about, like, over ten kilometers yesterday. Mm. Uh, And I was up for over twenty hours, so that's me. I'm still recovering from that. I've just had a nap, and now I'm ready to record. (laughs) Um, But I know, for me at least, sometimes naps can be, you know, a hit or miss. It's good during the nap, and then afterwards, I'm usually a little more wonky. Almost like, I don't know, like that one story, The Monkey's Paw? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll bite. In what way is it like the monkey's paw, Sarah? Oh, because, like, you get your wish, you have a nap, but then you're wonky after. Mm. That's that's the way. Right. It was a way of me being like, so what are we watching today, Ben? No, I understood the segue. So today's movie is an adaptation of the monkey's paw. And to be honest, Sarah, the monkey's paw is something that, like, I'm very aware of as a concept. Yeah. I get the, like, gag behind it. I understand the trope. I understand, like, the cliche. But, like, I know of it only as a trope or a cliche. I don't know of it as a story. Like, sure. I've never read the story The Monkey's Paw. I'm not aware of the original. Like, I assume the original story goes the same way as every version of The Monkey's Paw I've ever seen. But I've only ever seen, like 
oh, here's The Simpsons doing it on Treehouse of Horror, or here's this TV show doing a version, or that thing doing a version, or like, oh, you know, there's this thing that isn't a monkey's paw, but it works basically the same. Like, the idea of like, oh, be careful what you wish for, yeah. right? I'm aware of all of that, but like, I've never seen a movie version, I've never read the story, I just know of it as a thing that exists. <laughs> you know of it through osmosis. Yeah, and through its like, the way that it's become like a stock plot. I guess it's kind of like when we watched Cat and the Canary the first time, and we all kind of went like, oh, this is where having to spend the night in the haunted house in order to get the inheritance comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the case of the monkey's paw, it comes from the author W.W. W. Jacobs. Hmm. Uh, A.K.A. William Wymark Jacobs. Okay. In case that wasn't enough W's for you, he was born in Wapping, East London, was born in 1863, and lived until 1943. Okay. He did well in private school and college, earning a position as a clerk in the Post Office Savings Bank. After a few years, Jacobs was getting down with the standard 9 to 5, and he published his first short story in 1885. Okay. Writing was more of a hobby than, like, a can't-stop-writing kind of passion that we see in other authors. So his output was slower than most. But once he was able to support himself independently through his writing, he quit his office job in 1899. All right, well, I mean, that's four years after his first story. That's not bad at all. That's 14 years. Oh, you're right. (laughs) Correct. Yep. What's neat with Jacob's is the majority of his writing is humorous in nature. Okay. Horror and kind of thrilling tales of suspense were written, but they weren't his bread and butter. Hmm. I mean, I can kind of understand that because the monkey's paw, as at least, you know, the iterations I've sort of seen of it, you know, kind of has more of like a um, dark irony, like black comedy kind of thing to it, right? Like, I yeah, feel it like... it definitely lends itself more to that. Like, I feel like, you know, I, I mentioned it already, like, it being a Simpsons thing. I feel like that's the most, like, straight take, though, that I've seen of the monkey's paw in my media intake. Like, it's not... It's hard to turn that concept to humor. I would agree with you that the monkey's paw can definitely lend itself more to, like, that dark irony, kind of, like, black comedy mm-hmm. thing. Um... The Monkey's Paw was published in 1902 in a collection called um, Lady of the Barge. Okay. And other notable spooky tales Jacobs wrote include The Toll House in 1909 in the short story collection Sailor's Knots and Jerry Bundler in 1901 in the collection Light Frights. These collections weren't just spooky short stories. Right. They were a mix of genres in there. Um, And Jerry Bundler is kind of notable because he adapted it for the London stage in 1899. Uh, It was titled The Ghost of Jerry Bundler, and it was later published as a stage play in 1908. Sure. The Ghost of Jerry Bundler is a better title than just Jerry Bundler. Like Jerry... Yeah, but when it's in, like, a short story collection oh, sure. where you're not really sure what you're going to get, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, 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 but, it like... It sense to... Yeah. I'm just saying that, like, Jerry Bundler sounds like a sitcom character. 
Well, it's like the ghost were, of Jerry Butler. That's a premise. It's like you're going to, in to see Jerry Maguire, and it turns out it's a ghost story. Well, but also it's like when you decide to call your movie about the dude who like goes to Mars and learns how to like, you know, fight monsters, John Carter. And it's like, oh, is that like a political drama about like, <laughs> about like a, 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 in a, in a from a certain point of view? <laughs> okay, so the monkey's paw was published in 1902, like I mentioned, and it's kind of described as supernatural and macabre. Mm. Sure. It features the White family, uh, Mr. and Mrs. White and their adult son, Herbert. (laughs) Their large adult son? (laughs) He lives at home. Leave him alone. They're settling in before dinner when a friend of the family's, Sergeant Major Morris, comes by for a visit, and he joins them. He had served in India with the British Army and shows them a trinket he's brought back. A mummified monkey's paw. You know, like you do. It's magical because an old fakir, which um, is a devout Muslim mystic, Mm -hmm. put a spell on the paw that gives three wishes, but with drastic punishments for interfering with fate. Okay. Now Morris... He's had enough of this paw. He's like, trust me, this thing is garbage. And he throws it into the fire. Ooh. But Mr. White goes in and saves it. He's skeptical about all of this, but he's like, no, like, this is a valuable trinket. Don't destroy it. No, man, like, it's a fucking mummified monkey paw. Like, anybody would be proud to have such a thing on their mantelpiece. Uh, Weirdos. But Morris is like, fine, you have it. But he does warn him again. He leaves. The whites amongst themselves, um, Herbert suggests wishing for money. You know, let's just, like, see what happens. Um, and Mr. White is like, yeah, sure. Um, I'm pretty content. I have everything I I need, everything I might want. So he wishes for 200 pounds, which is the money that they needed for the last mortgage payment on their house. The hand writhes and moves, and Mr. White freaks out. But upon inspection, the hand is still. The rest of the night is calm, but Herbert, before he goes to bed, swears he sees an eerie monkey face in the fireplace suit. (laughs) The next day, Mr. and Mrs. White learn that Herbert has been killed in a machine accident at the company. His body has been mangled. It's not a pretty sight. The company that he worked for denies responsibility, but does offer a goodwill payment. Of 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. After the funeral, Mrs. White is just overtaken with grief and is incredibly upset. And she begs her husband to wish Herbert alive. Oof. He does so. And an hour or so later, they hear a rapping at the door. Mrs. White is desperate to open the door, but Mr. White fears what is actually there. What is behind this door? Is it his son or something else? Mm-hmm. And just as Mrs. White opens the door, he makes a third wish, and Mrs. White despairs, seeing that no one is at the door. Oh, Trixie. So that's the story. Huh. So it's just kind of, like, ambiguous as, like, to whether he, the third wish was he wished for there to be nothing at the door? Yeah, um, my understanding is that you don't know what the third wish is. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know what was going on with the wrapping. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no way to, like, 
really confirm whether uh, Herbert's death is due to the monkey's paw or was literally just an accident. Well, because that's the thing is, like, the classic way that this kind of, like, careful what you wish for uh, trope works is that the wishes come true in ways that... You did not anticipate. Well, and that are still consistent with the world around you, right? Like, you wish for the money, so something happens in the world that gets you that money, as opposed to, like, the money, like, materializing on the table in front of you, right? Yeah, yeah. So it means that, yeah, it's it's hard to prove, um, but it also is the mechanism whereby you can have that careful what you wish for, because it's usually not, like, you'll always get the thing... But the dominoes that need to get knocked over for you to get the thing are what's going to screw you over, right? Yeah. So the monkey's paw is um, W.W. Jacobs' like most well-known work. Yeah. Um, the Ghost of Jerry Bundler uh, adaptation is kind of like the other thing, but um, this is kind of his claim to fame. Yeah. There have been several adaptations, like just a ton of adaptations, such as a first act play in 1903, a stage adaptation in 1907, and then a 1915 film adaptation of the stage play starring the same actors, a uh, lost film from 1919, a 1923 film from director Manning Haynes, a 1928 radio adaptation, um, another radio adaptation uh, but as an episode of the BBC show Appointment with Fear mm-hmm. um, in 1946, mm-hmm. and then this 1948 adaptation, and of course many, many other iterations post-1948. The thing about The Monkey's Paw is there's a lot of adaptations of it, and then there's a lot of like what I would call iterations of it, Yes, where we're using that concept, but we're not really using any of the other details of the story. Right? Yeah. Um, I do think that my personal favorite monkey paw wish is the wish of Homer Simpson for a uh, turkey sandwich, where he, like, having figured out that the uh, the wishes turn on you, like, you know, he's like, I don't want to be the turkey to be speaking, and I don't want to be made of turkeys myself, and he like, lists off this whole long list of things, like, to try and cover all of his bases, and the sandwich appears, and he bites into it, he goes, oh, you know, turkey's a little dry. The turkey's a little dry! (laughs) Um, But yeah, a lot of iterations on top of those adaptations. You mentioned the 1915 short film that is lost, that sort of was just a, like, almost like a filming of the play. Mm -hmm. The 1923 feature film that you mentioned was also British, and it survives, uh, but it's an incomplete print. Uh, It only has the first three reels, as far as I know, about half the movie, uh, and it is available for viewing at the British Film Institute, uh, but there's no home video releases of mm-hmm. it at all, which is why we never watched it for the show. Um, and then there is also a 1933 American feature film from the makers of King Kong uh, that was also for a long time believed to be lost until a French dubbed print of it turned up in 2016. Uh, but this has not yet resulted in any kind of, like, restoration or home video release or anything. There's just, we hey, know... Hey, look what I found! Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that brings us to this 1948 British feature film adaptation of The Monkey's Paw, courtesy of Butcher's Film Service. 
So the Butcher's Film Service was founded by William Butcher, who, despite his last name, was a chemist. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so he got involved in, like, film chemistry. Sure. And the company started as, like, a development lab. And it got started during the Boer War. And then the company sort of kept going, and it evolved, and it survived past both world wars, and became a sort of producer and distributor, uh, and specialized in low-budget content. Sure. Now, Butcher films were primarily aimed at working-class audiences living in industrial areas, and so they usually would have a patriotic and populist kind of tone to them. The film was produced by Ernest G. Roy, who was the managing director of K Laboratories, a film processing lab that under Roy's leadership uh, developed uh, color film processes and sort of expanded its business and eventually uh, bought studio space that they would use to rent to other companies. Uh, particularly after the Second World War, they bought several... Um, wartime factories and airplane hangars to then repurpose as film studios. So it sounds like these guys are just making films just so they can experiment with making, like, the, like, hands and chemical part of making the films. Sure. Um, well, and I think a part of it, too, just becomes, like, where do you expand that business out after a certain point and always thinking, like, well... If I was my own supplier, then I wouldn't have to do this or whatever. Yeah. Um, K Studios had a deal with Butcher's Film Service to basically co-produce films. So Butcher's got to use K's studio space, and then K got to use Butcher's distribution network. So that's kind of how we ended up with the partnership that resulted in this movie. Okay. The Monkey's Paw was written and directed by Norman Lee and Barbara Toy. They are both sort of equally credited on the screenplay, although Norman Lee's name comes first. And then he is credited as director, and she is credited as associate director. Uh, now, Norman Lee, we have seen before. He directed The Door with Seven Locks back in 1940. That's why his name is familiar. Which we ultimately filed away under thriller as opposed to horror, I believe. Yeah, more like a, like a Sherlock Holmes mm. kind of mystery rather than like a detective kind of thing yeah now his associate on this project barbara toy uh she is a very interesting person in her own right really for reasons that have nothing to do with this movie <laughs> so she was born in 1908 in sydney australia her father was a newspaper editor and war correspondent and her family was like well enough to do that her education was basically um like, entirely self-taught, just, like, reading from their, like, copious library at home and stuff. <laughs> uh, her father encouraged her love of writing, and her first husband encouraged her love of travel. Uh, so she did travel from Australia, and I guess also her first husband, and came to <laughs> London in the 1930s, where she made a go of it as a stage actress, uh, but that didn't really work out, and she ended up having more luck behind the scenes in the theater as a playwright and director. She wrote four plays in her career, including one with Norman Lee, who she met during this period. Uh, during the war, she was an air raid warden and volunteer ambulance driver. The Monkey's Paw was her sole film project. However, 
She is most famous for the series of solo overland expeditions and adventures undertaken by her in her Series 1 Land Rover, Pollyanna, from 1950 to 1990, each of which was accompanied by a book accounting the trips, which made her, as well as the Land Rover brand, famous the world over. Cool. Yeah. So she... kind of like an Amelia Earhart, but with a Land Rover. Yes. Um, she was mostly attracted to desert climates, so like her expeditions would be things like, I'm going to drive from like Gibraltar in Spain, like over to Morocco and then like across Northern Africa to Egypt and then like over into the Middle East and like this kind of thing. She was the first woman to be allowed solo into, um, Saudi Arabia. Oh, damn. Um, Things like this. She was very famous for doing this. Uh, And the Land Rover company definitely, like, used her as a spokesperson. Uh, She passed away in 2001. Pretty recently. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's 19 years. Still, she made it to the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, 93 years old. Yeah. The cinematography in this film is by Brian Langley, who shot Dark Eyes of London. And the music is by Stanley Black who was a popular band leader, composer, and pianist in the UK, who wrote around 200 film scores, and also worked in classical music, jazz, Latin American music, and popular music. Uh, In the late 1940s and early 50s, he was one of the most heard musicians on the radio in Britain, and he continued to record, conduct, and compose well into the 1990s, when the onset of deafness led to his retirement before he passed away in 2002. The Monkey's Paw was released into theaters on November 1st, 1948, to a mixed critical reception, uh, with the pace and low budget being criticized along with the acting, but the film's fidelity to the short story receiving praise. Okay. Uh, It is now in the public domain, and you can watch a reasonably restored version on Amazon Prime for free. If you have the Amazon Prime service. Yeah. Well, folks, um, if you want to watch along, uh, check out Amazon Prime. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Monkey's Paw from 1948, directed by Norman Lee and Barbara Torrey. See you on the other side, everybody. Scream Scene, we just finished watching The Monkey's Paw from 1948, directed by Norman Lee and Barbara Toy. Well then, this was a movie. In the sense that it existed? Yes. Mm. I didn't super enjoy it. There were parts that I did enjoy, and those were the parts that I would say are closer to horror, but there's a lot of filler yeah. I think is the best way to kind of describe mm, it. Yeah. What yeah. did you think? Um, well, to peel back the curtain a little bit, uh, I, I haven't been having a great day. Uh, and, like, this has been going on for the last couple of days. It's just nothing really to be worried about, listeners. It's just 
down in the dumps for no reason. And There was a reason. I wasn't here. <laughs> Fair. So my mood wasn't great going into this movie. So I I want to be aware of that as I talk about this movie because I don't want that to like be affecting me too much because this movie ended up making me like upset. Oh. Like like angry or like like like, upset? Ang- like angry, but like I couldn't work up enough passion to really be angry. So I'm just kind of upset that I had to like sit through this. And filler is is absolutely the right word uh, for this movie. It's 65 minutes long. Really? And it's about 45 minutes of setup, 15 minutes of story, and 5 minutes of denouement. Yeah, I'm surprised that it was only 65 minutes because there were parts where I was like, I was sure that it was longer. Because it just dragged its heels. Yeah, the the actual monkey's paw, like, short story starts happening at, like, 45 minutes in. That's starting from uh, them making, like, the first wish on the paw. Sure. Well, how about I lay out what happens? Or doesn't happen. Or doesn't happen. Yes, I will be glossing over a few things. There's a lot of characters in this movie. There's a lot of... um, I'll say comedic relief, but the comedy is through dialogue. Like, oh, Cornish people, aren't they superstitious? Yeah, there's a lot of just, like, character business. Yeah, um, I just want to make sure I'm clear that when I say comedic relief, I'm not talking about, like, people slipping on bananas, you know? like. <laughs> it, yeah, it's sort of like um, if you were watching your family and family friends, like, talk around a table... At trying to kind of be funny to each other and tell, like, off-color jokes. And then, like, somebody says, like, oh, man, you're really funny. You should go into stand-up. And it's like, no, none of this was actually good. Yeah. It's like that. Yeah. Like conversations at the office. hmm So, yes, I will be skipping over a few of that. We start with this art dealer type picking up a monkey's paw at what I think is an estate sale. No, I think it's like this guy has a store. Oh, and it's like of his like curios. Curios and stuff, right? Uh, and the store owner um, is the best way to describe him is he's like a poor man's. Claude Rains? Yes. A yeah. poor man's Claude Rains. Yeah. Our main character is a poor man's British Gene Hackman in look. Yeah. Yeah. It is mm-hmm. uncanny at times. Yeah. yeah, Gene Hackman doing, like, a Cornish accent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously the timing doesn't work. No. But it was kind of fun for that. Anyways, so an art dealer type picks up a monkey's paw at a curio shop. Meanwhile, we meet the Chalon family. We have Mr. Chalon, who is Gene Hackman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mrs. Chalon. And their son, Tom who uh, is a wannabe motorcycle race driver. Yeah, motorcycle racer. Yeah. They also have their family friend, friend Kelly, who is Irish. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kelly helps run the family's general store alongside Mr. Chalon. And we also have Tom's girlfriend, Beryl. Mr. Chalon owes 200 pounds to the local bookie, 
and he is trying to raise funds, so he invites the art dealer we met earlier in to try and sell a painting that Mrs. Trelawne was gifted in her grandfather's inheritance. What actually ends up happening is Mr. Trelawne swaps the painting for the monkey's paw. It's a real Jack and the Beanstalk situation. That's exactly what I was thinking. Kelly, as soon as he sees the paw, warns them, this is bad business, there's evil in this paw. Imagine all of, all of that said with an Irish accent, though. Mm-hmm. Oh, that paw ain't be no good. <laughs> ain't be no good. You're so bad at accents. Probably for the best. Kelly recounts this story where he once tried to break in and steal some fancy trinkets from a rich house uh, back in Ireland, in Dublin, which is presumably why he's no longer there. Yeah. And now in, like, Cornwall or wherever the fuck. As he's about to break in, he overhears the man of the house and uh, a couple of guests he has. Uh, Now, the guests are a couple. It's a married couple. I didn't catch any names, so I will try to be as descriptive as possible. Mm -hmm. We have man of the house, Mm -hmm. husband, and wife. Yeah. Man of the house is showing them some of his cool trinkets. Husband is drunk and very rude. Yeah. And apparently, wife and man of the house are having an affair. No. Wife is having an affair with an actor friend. Man of the house simply is sticking up for her when husband finds out and gets angry, which husband then interprets as man of the house is also having an affair because husband is drunk, paranoid, suspicious, and an asshole. Yes. (laughs) I feel like the husband is the type that would post on, like, 1948 equivalent of Am I the Asshole? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, he wouldn't have enough um, self-reflection to even get that far. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, so they're talking about trinkets, and Man of the House shows them this monkey's paw, and how back when he was in India, uh, he got it from an old fakir who, um, like I said, in the context setting, like, this is kind of a part that's straight out of the the short story, and that, you know, if you wish on it, bad things kind of happen. And it's implied that he's used up all three of his wishes. Um, Which, I mean, considering he still has, like, a big mansion in Dublin and he's still alive, like, he's doing okay. Yeah, I think think you, you turned out okay. Meanwhile, the husband is just, like, belittling wife every step of the way. So she wishes to be free of this marriage. Mm-hmm. And the husband calls her on it. And that's where we get the intel of the affairs. Or a single affair. Singular. So Kelly overhears all this. But after they leave the trinket room, Kelly goes in and steals the monkey's paw. As Kelly is leaving, he sees... The argument continue out by the cars, where the husband says, You want to be free? I'll give you freedom. Whips out a gun and shoots the wife. And, oh boy. Okay. Sure, movie. All right. Yeah, the old free of the mortal coil chestnut. We learn later from spinning newspapers, still in the flashback, that it was a murder-suicide. And Man of the House says, In court... No, I'm pretty sure it was the monkey's paw that caused all this. <laughs> Having finished telling his story, Kelly swears that it's true because he included details of his criminal activities. 
Right. If I was really wanting to lie about this, why would I incriminate myself? And, uh, to be clear, after this whole sordid affair gets in, like, newspapers and shit, Kelly does, through an intermediary, sneak the monkey's paw back into Man of the House's house, which then ties in with when the art dealer bought it from the curio shop owner at the beginning, because when he asked the curio shop owner where he got it, the curio shop owner said he got it in an Irish estate sale. So it all all ties together. You were paying more attention than I. <laughs> Back to the Trelons. Mr. Trelon wishes for the 200 pounds to pay off his bookie. Meanwhile, Tom has got a new motorbike and wants to start racing. He's invited to cover a spare spot that they had at the local race, and a horrible accident occurs. He's just eaten up in flames off screen. Mm -hmm. But the company gives his family the 200 pounds. You know, as a oops. Well, they call it prize money, so it's like, did he win that? Uh, well, I think, yeah, I think it's like in acknowledgement of this dude dying, we're going to give you the, the prize money. Yeah. Mrs. Trelon is beside herself with grief and also guilt over thinking that she was a part of causing Tom's death by saying, yes, let's get Mr. Trelon to wish for the money. It's a few days after the funeral, and it's a dark and stormy night. It's just howling wind out there. And she is up and very upset, and she is begging Mr. Trelon to wish their son Tom alive again. So he finally does... And then they hear a rapping at the door. And again, it's still storming. But in the midst of them freaking out at someone like knocking at the door and everything, he's dropped the paw. And he's freaking out, thinking, like, no, we can't open the door. Um, I, can't, I need to find this paw. And he has a bit of, like, time to find it because the door latch is stuck, which, to be fair, is something they set up earlier in the movie. Yes. Um... And he finds the paw and wishes his son back in the grave, just as Mrs. Trelon manages to open the door. And he tells her, see, the paw had nothing to do with his death. We've made a wish for him to come back. He's not there. You must have just been hearing that there was knocking at the door. Don't worry, we're not guilty. It was all just a coincidence. Go back to bed. Mm -hmm. And then he looks at the camera and we hear his internal monologue of... Um, at least she will have peace. Mm -hmm. um, I, however, know the truth. Would have been a great place to stop the movie. Yes. But we get a little bit more with seeing Kelly, the family friend, selling the paw back to that original owner that we saw who sold it to the art dealer. And the Curio's shop owner says, ah, fate has brought us back together again to the paw. Mm -hmm. That's the end. Maybe there is some magic in this paw. Or maybe not. Who knows? So, yeah, there's a lot of filler. Even with what I've just kind of described, um, like Ben said it best when we came back, that the actual quote-unquote adaptation stuff starts like 35 minutes in, 45 minutes in. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, you, you said like, you know, they get the paw and then Mr. Trelon like, wishes for the money and you know and these are like you can kind of see a lot of these story beats coming like oh we need this money really bad is set up like really early in the movie and then they get the paw and then they're gonna wish for it but 
We it's, do get several scenes of Mr. Chillon being like, wow, I really need 200 pounds. Yeah, where are we going to get 200 pounds? Yeah. And like begging to the bookie, like, can you just give me to Monday? And gosh, if there was only a way to get 200 pounds, like, and you know, so then scenes of just like the son and his girlfriend, like hanging around talking about how he loves his motorcycle more than her. And like, you know, what, you know, and I'll, I'll trade in my bike for this other bike. And then because of that, I'm not going to buy you an engagement ring and blah, blah, blah. And then finally it's like, wait. We have that magic monkey's paw. We'll just wish for it. And it's like, yeah, man, thank you. It yeah. has been 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, there is a fun moment after they wish for the money that, like, the camera pans around the room. They're like, man, I, I don't see the 200 pounds. Where could it be? <laughs> and then, like, a, a postman shows up, and they're like, oh, maybe this is it. And it's not. And they're like, see, it didn't work after all. But, like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in this movie. I mean, you start in this curio shop and we get like a very long scene in there before this guy buys the monkey's paw and then we cut to the Trelons and we get a ton of like just here's what a day in the life of these general store owners are and a lot of like oh look at like old Irish Kelly like telling his tales to old Cornish Mr. Trelon and oh here's the like Cockney lady who lives in town and she's gonna come in and buy something and like blah 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 like here's just everybody in this town's business and yeah. like that goes on forever. I almost feel like maybe they felt they needed to add stuff to this to maybe make it different from past adaptations. I think the issue is just that at the end of the day like I can like there's not much to the short story. Right? Like, I can see why it does really well as a segment on, like, anthology kind of shows. They are struggling to pad this out to an hour. And I, you know, and it also, to me, then makes it clear why so many versions of the Monkey's Paw story I've seen just kind of take the premise of a monkey, of, like, the magic wishes that go bad on you, but don't adapt the story. Because there isn't much here. Um, yeah. One of the problems with the story is, you know... If you were to hand me the monkey's paw premise and you tell me it has three wishes, I'm going to do one wish per act of the movie. Yeah, but, that makes total sense. Right, and spread out the time. But the way the short story goes is we make a wish for money, our son dies, and then like the next two wishes happen immediately on the same night in the like spooky horror climax, right? So there's really only like 20 minutes max of story that you can get out of the original short stories. So they try to expand it here by giving us a ton of stuff about the family first, which might be justified as like, oh, well, now we'll really care about their struggles or whatever. But like the character of Kelly is like this completely added in element that doesn't achieve anything. He helps us get into this like flashback, but that flashback doesn't tell us anything new or interesting that we wouldn't already know. It just says, yep, here's the paw. Here's some people who owned it before, and here's it going wrong for them, because we need something to fill 15 more minutes. Yeah, and I feel like he was also brought in to bring in a little bit of that comedic relief, mm -hmm. because there are a lot of jokes, not specifically at the Irish expense, but just at, like, the different... I, regionalities? Yeah, I mean... Not, not ethnicity, I don't think that's the right word, but between, like... Like, you touched on it with the Cornish woman, the Irish mm -hmm. guy, the Cockney lady, like... It's what it is, is it's stereotyping. Ah. So, like, Kelly is an Irish stereotype. He is very superstitious. He's kind of, like, very roguish and mischievous. He is up to no good all the time. He's the reason 
Mr. Trelon is, like, in the hole for 200 pounds because he told him to bet on, like, these sure thing horses that didn't come in. Um, he definitely, you get the feeling like he's the kind of guy who, like, would, you know, borrow money from you and never, ever pay you back. Um, he's just kind of a shit heel. And then we find out later, like, oh, he was also a criminal and, like, all of these kind of things. And he's the one who, like, gets the monkey's paw and, like, sells it back at the end of the movie so that he can make a little bit of coin. Like, he's just a stereotype. And then the Trelons are kind of stereotypes in the sense of, like, it's a stereotype in Britain that, like, the Cornish people are very superstitious. Okay. Um, like, that's a stereotype of Cornish people. Um, Cornish people also tend to get stereotyped as, like, like, the Cornish accent culturally in Britain is, like, equivalent to, like, the, like, southern accent in the United States. It's a very, like, country yokel kind of... With a bit of a drawl. Yeah, kind of accent. Okay. Um, it, basically, if you have a Cornish accent, you're either, like, a pig farmer or, like, a pirate. Um, <laughs> what if I'm both? Right. I raise my pigs on the sea. <laughs> so, like, to me, that kind of explains why we're in Cornwall anyway, because, like, in the original story, it's the White family, and they're not Cornish, and that's not really an element to the story at all. But I and just... you get the feeling that it's an urban story, too, because yes. they work at factories. Yes. So I just get the feeling if someone making this movie was just like, well, pfft, no self-respecting Englishman would fall for this monkey's paw foo Let's have them be Cornish yokels. Who, they, everybody knows they're superstitious. So it just kind of, like, adds all these elements, like, that don't really add anything to the story but time, mm -hmm. um, just to pad it out. There is kind of a neat scene between the family, Kelly, and the art dealer, after Kelly has told his flashback story about, like, what everyone thinks of superstition mm. and the belief in it. It is kind of interesting... I think that they tried to use it as a way to centralize everything because even when the art dealer is talking with the curiosity shop owner, they have a little bit of a discussion about it. Yeah. And like you see that trend in other movies and like I feel like British movies, like if you think of Dead of Night yes. in 1945, obviously that's an anthology film and we have that central thing of they're all at the house, but the question is... Did he really dream this up beforehand? Like, did he really have deja vu? Or, like, what's what's yeah, actually it, going on yeah. here? Yeah, or is there a rational explanation for supernatural events, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's kind of what we're getting here with, do you believe in superstition or not? And it's a lot of, like, you know, there's the, the art dealer who's like, oh, no, not at all. And then people are like, ah, but you said... You take a gamble on or, something. So that means you believe in luck or whatever. And it's like, thanks, guys. I know words mean things. Yeah. Like, fucking pedantic assholes. Um, Tom Tom Trelon, who's the son, is, like, the worst character. Oh, my God. His name is Tom Trelon. Yep. The dad's name is Robert. I don't remember the wife's name. I don't think they ever said it. Um, but Tom oh, Trelon. No, you know it's Alice. No one ever calls her Alice, but right. we know it's Alice because he says he's named his motorcycle Alice after his mom. Just yeah. no one ever addresses her as Alice. They all address her as mother. Yeah. Um, Tom Trelon sounds like, oh, he's going to be the next Spider-Man. <laughs> well, I was thinking like, like a pulp hero, like Tom Trelon, space cop. Um... <laughs> Oh, boy. So, yeah, there's just really nothing here is the thing. I mean, I, 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 I agree with what you're saying about, like, there are some scenes where you can tell they were trying some stuff. Yeah, like the sequence during the storm at the end is mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. um, 
lots of tension, um, and I think the ending of Mr. Chillon convincing his wife that they aren't to blame is good, but, mm -hmm. like, with him being, like, but I know the truth, like, kind of freaking out about it. But overall, I feel like there's just too much meandering and talking. Even the flashback scene with Kelly is kind of okay. Like, it, it has something to it, but even then it's too much fluff, too many characters, and I even lost track of who they were talking about who was having an affair with who, because it doesn't fucking matter. I don't no. care. No, it doesn't. Like, you could cut this movie down Absolutely. to, like, a half-hour segment of a TV show or something, and you would never notice mm -hmm. what was missing. There's so much filler that, you know, I was I was finally, like, just grateful when we got to the part of the movie where the story started to happen and then we got to that ending you know with with mr trelon and like him thinking like you know but i'll always know the truth and i was like oh good ending and then the movie kept going with more filler and it's just three like consecutive scenes of different characters kind of giving a version of a like well it was all coincidence or was it kind of thing and by the end you're just like yeah i get it yeah yeah like it's just I don't know, like, in the flashback scene with um, Kelly overhearing the conversation, you know, my big takeaway from that scene was like, huh, okay, write that down in my writing tips notebook. You can lengthen a scene if you have one character just give a snide remark after everyone else in the scene's line of dialogue. Because that whole scene was like the wife being like, oh, show me your monkey's paw. <laughs> monkey's paw. Oh, yes, I got this monkey's paw in India where did you get some beer, though? Uh, you know, like, and it was just, ugh. Yeah. Um, don't don't follow that advice, though. Yeah. Don't follow that. Put that tip under the uh, what not to do. <laughs> I know. I think the, the ending scene with the, like, stormy night is probably one of the best done scenes in the movie. But I don't know if the ending of The Monkey's Paw really translates well to film because... In order for us to know what's going on in the story, we have to know that Mr. Trelawne is using the third wish to say, like, oh, I wish my son was back in his grave. And that ends up taking the ambiguity away that's there in the short story, which is, I think, why they start hammering in the, like, was it a coincidence or wasn't it yeah. thing to try and bring the ambiguity back. I agree. Yeah, they, like, make a point that whenever Mr. Chillon makes a wish, he is saying it out loud. Yeah. Um, as, and, like, an announcement. Which, like, you kind of have to do in film, right? Because even if he was just thinking it, for the audience to know what he's doing, you still have to hear the, like, voiceover or something, right? Yeah. Otherwise, there's... not in any earlier scene. It's only in that ending part. Yeah, and even if you did that voiceover, though, that would take away the ambiguity of, like, oh, well, what was the third wish, right? You'd have yeah. no way of knowing what was going on otherwise there's no way because like the one thing is that the movie's really cheap so like as sarah joked about like the motorcycle accident that kills the kid uh i suspect i said this when we were watching i suspect that they changed it from like the factory accident because they happened to have motorcycle race stock footage lying around but we like we don't see him burn to death and crash on screen right we see him skid but not in a way that would appear to be deadly yeah and then we just, like, cut to the girlfriend, right, screaming. And then with, like, the monkey's paw itself, apparently it moves whenever someone asks for a wish, but, like, we never see it move. No. We, we are always on, like, other people or reactions or whatever. And you see this cheapness in the very first scene. The curiosity shop owner 
doesn't really want to sell the monkey's paw mm -hmm. to the art dealer. So the art dealer's like, I want to buy this monkey's paw. And the guy's like, well, what do you think of this weird thing? Here's a bit of the story behind it. No, I want the monkey's paw. But we're just, the camera is focused solely on them. We're not seeing this other interesting thing. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, they're just talking around what is going on and it's boring. The, so the thing is, is like, if you were in a movie where the monkey's paw was actually shown to move or like if it like curled its fingers after each wish, which yeah. it doesn't do here, then you could maybe have a nonverbal wish because there'd be a visual signifier that a wish is happening, Absolutely. but we don't have that. So the wish has to become verbal, which takes away that ambiguity, which means we then have to like try to restore it somehow awkwardly. The one thing I will say in this movie's favor is in terms of its fidelity to the short story, it does mean that it was a movie that was focused on like this older couple, Mr. and Mrs. Trelawne, and that was kind of nice just because of the fact that like if this was a Hollywood version, we wouldn't have gotten that. They would have found a way to like center the story around the young in love couple, right? Yeah, the breeding pair. Yeah, and they're just not important at all. Like once Tom dies, we never see Beryl again. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, like, in terms of it being truthful, once we get rid of the fluff, sure, it's adapting the story. But I almost feel like I could... It, it's difficult to even say that this is an accurate adaptation when it has so much filler. Well, I feel like there's two ways that you generally tend to see short stories get adapted to film. And, you know, in terms of which is the better method, I think ultimately comes down to each individual movie because it's about, well, how good of a writer are you? Because the one method that you can go with is try to expand the story out to last the full running time of the feature, right? So that can work out really well um, if you are creative enough to like fill in the gaps and add more depth to the characters in a way that doesn't feel superfluous. If that goes poorly, you end up with, like, the Jim Carrey, How the Grinch Stole Christmas movie, where it's like, nobody cares about each individual who's sad, tragic origin story or whatever <laughs> the fuck, right? Or, like, the inner politics of Whoville. The other method you tend to see a lot is the short story becomes a scene in a larger story. So like, And that's what kind of what we have here. Yes, that's what we have here. Um, and that can go really well if you're good enough at extrapolating out what either could have led up to that scene or what might happen after. And that's what these writers weren't good enough at doing because it's just like a lot of people sort of sitting around saying like, well, it's sure going to be interesting in this movie once that monkey's paw starts doing things. And then after the short story section, it's, wow, it sure was interesting in this movie when that monkey's paw was doing things. Absolutely. That's why um, I just feel like we should bring up the question of, is this horror? Mm. Because I do think it is horror, because I think you're supposed to have chills at the end with mm -hmm. Mr. Trelawne. Mm -hmm. But it's so diluted with mm -hmm. everything else. I I wanted to like hear your thoughts on, like, do we... <laughs> Do we start having like a like a daily recommended dose percentage right. for horror? Like is there a yeah, percentage required I, for it? I hear what you're saying. And it's you know, and also since that like I always bring up like, oh, one scene of horror in a movie doesn't make it a horror movie kind of stuff. Yeah. But I always come back to the idea of like, okay, well what's the intent of the story? 
And the fact of the matter is, is the monkey's paw, the scary part of this movie is still the core of this movie. Everything else is leading up to that scene. It's not like, oh, there was a scary scene at the start, but now the rest of the movie is about, like, this charming friendship between Kelly and Trelon or something, right? Yeah, they didn't um, Dr. Cyclops it. Right, right. And so, you know, while the movies that we've watched that this reminds me the most of are those, like, Todd Slaughter movies. Yeah. Um, But I do think this is horror. It's just that it's the kind of horror where, like, you're sitting around the campfire and everybody's, you know, telling ghost stories. And your grandfather's like, oh, I got I got a real good one. And you're like, oh, okay. And he starts, he's like, all right, this is about a monkey's paw that grants wishes. And you're like, oh, damn, I'm intrigued. And it's like, and, uh, well, you know, it's about this family. And they, they, they got this paw. And you're like, okay, okay. And he's like, well, but I have to tell you first how this family came to get such an item. And you're like, all right, all right, I'm, I'm hooked in. And that's like, so you see... The Trelons were this family in Cornwall, this particular village, and they had this friend named Kelly, and he did, and like, it just goes off the rails into like a bunch of details that nobody cares about, and your grandfather's talking about how, you know, he they were wearing an onion on their belt because it was the style at the time, and you're like, Grandpa, Grandpa, when does the monkey's paw come in? He's like, no, I have to, I have to tell you all the stuff first, right? <laughs> so like, it's bad, but I think it's still horror. Okay, cool. So where were you looking to rank this? So I have a spot picked out. Oh, dope. Uh, which is number 138. Okay, so replacing House of Mystery. Yeah, way down at the bottom of the list, because I scrolled down and I went, well, it is more competently shot than Torture Ship or House of Mystery, but, you know, The Creeper, which we watched last week, I would watch that again before watching this. Like, Fair enough. the creeper at least is trying to create the illusion of things happening through the whole movie. Uh, and then, like, there's these Melias films that are, like, creative. Uh, but then, like, House of Mystery is not well made. So that's how I kind of just ended up there. I feel like that's really good. Um, I, when I was looking at ranking, I was definitely looking at this low end of the list. And I, I just couldn't figure out where to go. I was kind of looking all the way up to around, like, 120, 121 with the Catman of Paris and La Llorona, the monster. Oh, yeah, um, that's way too high, I think. Absolutely, but um, then, like, as I worked my way down, I kind of, like, was near the monster walks at 129, for example, but nothing was really feeling right. Mm -hmm. But looking down where you are, 138, that actually does feel right. So let's do that. All right. Entering the list at the new number 138 is The Monkey's Paw from 1948, directed by Norman Lee and Barbara Toy. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line on Tumblr through our Ask box. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can listen to us on any podcasting app that you prefer. 
If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the podcasting service of your choice. Um, ratings and reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts, help the show to be promoted through like the recommendation algorithms. Another way that you can help promote the show is just by telling a friend about us, whether that's through social media or around the water cooler. And if you'd really like to give us a hand, you can head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, we are staying in Britain. Okay. I know that the last couple movies have not been great. Yeah, but that's, like, bound to happen. I don't know a lot about next week's movie, but I do know that it got a recent Blu-ray restoration from Kino Lorber, and also that Martin Scorsese called it one of the true classics of the supernatural horror genre. Dang, that's high praise. Yeah, it's Queen of Spades from 1949, starring Anton Walbrook, who we last saw in the third version of Student of Prague. Okay, interesting. That's the Nazi one, right? Yes. He has since fled and, you know... Settled in Britain. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, hopefully it'll be good. Yeah. Well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.